Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alyssa. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Central City. It's so good to be in worship with you on this sunny March morning. Now, this is a special weekend. If you didn't know it, this is our six-month anniversary as a church. Yay! We made it. So I just want to pause and I just want to celebrate all that um, God has done in the last six months, all that we've been able to do as a church and as a community um, over the last six months. So um, just a quick recap. Uh, last summer, we were given the, the use of an old church building, which we rebranded to the Avondale Place. Um, it's a space in Franklinton for the community and nonprofits to create change. So it's a cool um, thing that we've been able to do. Uh, we also did a week-long event of serving with 12 organizations. Tons of people came out uh, with projects from gardening and trash pickup to reading books to children and cooking meals. It was our Hello Neighbor event. And then we had our grand opening, September 17th, where we launched here in this theater. Um, it was great. We had popsicles and popcorn, and that was, that was really exciting. Um, and then we didn't, in March, we didn't have a normal uh, church experience on a Sunday morning. We canceled our normal worship and so that we could cheer on our neighbors running through the streets of Grandview during the Columbus Marathon, which some of you we're in. So that was really fun. We had cowbells and it was a really great time. We still have more cowbells. If you want one, I've got one for you. Uh, we collected then, we collected uh, hurricane supplies uh, throughout the month of October for um, some relief efforts in Florida with some of our partner churches. We also sent a, tra a trailer load um, of supplies to Houston that Peter drove the trailer, our Central City trailer, all the way to Houston, which a bunch of supplies and helped did some relief down there during the hurricane um, stuff. And uh, we have small groups. We have uh, four or five small groups going on right now. People are finding community and growing in their faith in those small groups. And um, we've had five baptisms that we've been able to celebrate as a church community. Uh, we had Christmas Eve here in Grandview, but we also had a Christmas Eve service in Franklinton, which was really exciting for us. Um, we now, as of 2018, have a Celebrate One Community Health Connector who is a part of our staff, and her whole job is to go around and meet moms who are pregnant or have young children and help them find the resources that they need to help um, their kids grow up healthy and, and live to their first birthday. Um, we also have, are, have been partnering with a food pantry in Franklinton to, uh, to, give, to pass out food to um, elderly and disabled people who are living in Franklinton and can't make it to the food pantry. So that's really exciting. And um, we also launched an online church service. We're just doing a pilot these five weeks, but it's really exciting to be online and to allow people to worship with us in that way. So that's what we've done in the last six months. Can you imagine what we can do in the, the rest of our life as a church? Um, just in the, you know, just thinking about the next six months, we have more baptisms scheduled. Um, we're hiring a community volunteer coordinator for the summer who will be helping us um, do some uh, projects with organizations that we're partnering with over the summer. Uh, we'll be hosting community baby, baby showers with our Celebrate One Health Connector. Um, we'll have worship on Sundays. We'll have more small groups that are starting up. I mean, lots of exciting stuff. So this is a good time to be part of a new church. New things are really exciting. So we uh, just want to and thank God for, um, for all that he's done in and through us and all that he has planned. Um, so let's just pray before we get into the sermon and then we'll get into our message this morning. God, we are so excited to be a part of this community, um, this new thing that you're doing here in this city. 
It's uh, at times been terrifying and um, fun and exhilarating and um, and hard, but so good, God. And we are just excited about all the stuff that you've done in us, um, all the stuff that you've done through us, the ways in which we've been able to impact the city. And God, we just pray that we would continue um, by your guidance and by uh, by your strength that we would continue to to have an influence in these places here in Grandview and Franklinton and around the city. And guys, we come here this morning to worship you. Um, we know that you're in this place. We know that you're here, that you've been here before we got here, and we know that you um, love each and every one of us. So as we move into this teaching, um, in this somewhat difficult series, um, we just pray that you would open our ears and our eyes to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be obedient, that we'd, we would um, be ready to listen, that our hearts would be soft to hear how you want to grow us today. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past four weeks, we've been in a teaching series called Headlines. Our goal was to name the headlines, just name them. Um, it was to look at them from a biblical perspective. And we also wanted to learn how to have these kinds of conversations around these specific headlines, but also just in general. And this has been a deeply... Uh, deeply challenging series for me, and I hope it has been for you, honestly. I hope that it's challenged you in ways that you, and you've been able to grow in ways that you didn't expect. But I do have a disclaimer for this service <laughs> for today. Um, today's sermon is dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. Um, we're discussing sexual abuse and violence, so I don't, I think all the kids left the room, so that's good. I was going to say, we have great children's ministry. Um, that would be, this would be a good day to try it out. Um, but it's, it's going to be difficult. It's difficult if you've ever experienced this um, or if, you've, if you know people who have experienced this. It's going to be a heavy sermon, so I just want to warn you off the bat. One in six women are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One in six. One in 33 men are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Every 98 seconds, an American is raped or assaulted. And the most devastating part of this sermon for me is knowing that we are in the presence of survivors of abuse or harassment. And along with all of you out there, I say me too. Now, my story is not as tragic or traumatic as some of yours, but I have been discriminated against and publicly humiliated because of my gender and my profession. He said, only men stand at this desk and preach the word of God in front of hundreds of our community members at this community worship service. That it was expected that I was going to be preaching because I was the new pastor in town and that was the tradition, but only men stand at this desk and preach the word of God. And that was painful, but so much less than many of your stories. Today we are looking at the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement started in 2006, actually, if you didn't know that. It started in 2006 by Tarana Burke. She, who, she herself is a survivor of sexual abuse, and she was inspired to organize women, particularly women of color and women who live in underprivileged communities, to empower them with empathy. That Me Too, I too have been assaulted and abused, but we can rise up together, find our strength together, and overcome this. On October 15th, 
2017, the Me Too hashtag went viral when actress Melissa, Alyssa Milano encouraged women to tweet it to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. That's what she said. We want to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And the problem being sexual harassment or assault. And it has been in the headlines ever since. Every single day, there has been a headline on some news outlet that has something to do with the Me Too movement. Since October, millions of people, women and men, have tweeted or, or posted on Facebook their stories of sexual violence with the hashtag MeToo. So for research, I went for this sermon, I went to my Facebook and I searched MeToo. Now Facebook, if you've ever searched anything, the first thing they pull up is uh, posts that your friends have written or have said about that. So I, I read all of these posts in October that all my friends, so many of my friends, posted me too. And I read them again this week. And that was really difficult. It was difficult reading them in October. It was difficult rereading them this week. The phrase me too was tweeted by Alyssa Milano around noon on October 15th and was used more than 200,000 times on Twitter by the end of the day and tweeted more than 500,000 times by October 16th. On Facebook, the hashtag was used by more than 4.7 million people in 12 million posts during the first 24 hours. Let's just see the magnitude, the scope of this issue. But not only have women's stories of harassment been tweeted, but numerous stories of men and companies are dealing with the repercussions of these stories coming out. Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein being the first, but definitely not the last. Larry Nasser just recently, um, he's a doctor at Michigan State who spent years abusing very, very young female gymnasts. He just received life in prison, and the president of the university resigned because of all this. Because these allegations have been going on for years, but it wasn't until the Me Too movement, where 150 women found the strength to come forward, it wasn't until then that many of these allegations were actually taken seriously. This isn't just happening in finance or, or in, uh, in the movie industry or in, with the gymnastics, but it's happening in business, in finance, in the church, in education, in military, pretty much every single profession, every single work environment, this is happening. Sexual harassment policies and procedures are being updated and enforced, finally. And as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26, nothing is hidden that won't be revealed and nothing secret that won't be brought out into the open. Here are some statistics about sexual abuse and violence. I share these statistics because every name has, they're not scrolling, they're supposed to be scrolling. There they go. I share these because every number is a name. Every name has a story. And now, because of one tweet, we are beginning to tell our stories. We are beginning to listen to the stories of others, to hear their stories. And we're beginning to believe their stories. Sexual abuse, domestic violence, shaming women, harassment, silencing stories, this happens in the church too. 
this happens everywhere. And, but as with the other headlines that we've looked at, I believe that the church has to lead the way to stop and stop the cycles that have hurt so many so deeply. We have to lead the way for healing. In the West, uh, the church doesn't really have a theology for those who have been sinned against. We don't really have a way to talk about it. We talk about sin, the way in which people have acted against God or others. But sin is active. Sin is a thought, word, deed, attitude, or intention that goes against God and humanity. But we don't have language to talk about being sinned against, the trauma, the deep wounds, the oppression that we've experienced. In Korean theology, however, they have a word for these deep wounds caused by oppression and abuse. The word is han. Han is the collapsed anguish of the heart due to psychosomatic, social, economic, political, cultural repression and oppression. It's the collapsed sadness, the bitterness, the rage, and the hopelessness that become the vortex of agony. It overwhelms conscious and unconscious modes of thinking. Han, as described by um, by a, a Korean theologian, is a mental, physical, and spiritual response to a terrible wrong done to a person. It elicits a, a warped depth of, of pain, a visceral, physical response, an intense rending of the soul, and a sense of hopelessness. We know this feeling. Think of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Victims of domestic violence, war veterans, victims of human trafficking, children who have been abused or neglected, women or men who have been sexually assaulted or raped. We've seen this Han. It can also describe the effect on groups of people. This is the heart of the pain of the African-American community, the oppression and violence of slavery and Jim Crow laws and structures of racism. And this is also at the heart of the Me Too movement. An entire gender crying out at the intense sadness and bitterness and rage at the way women have been dehumanized, objectified, exploited, and silenced. This is Han. Sin causes Han, which in turn can lead someone to sin, which causes Han. We can see the effects of Han and sin all around us. One person says something mean to you at work, so then you have a bad day, you're, you're in pain, so then you go home and say something mean to your family. Your Han, your pain from the day, became your sin. You act against another. Now, this is a very basic, minimized example, but you get the idea that sin can cause Han in someone's Han. Their deep pain and oppression can cause them to go and sin. And because of the cycle of Han and sin, sexual violence, assault, abuse is not just a female issue. Anyone can experience sexual harassment or violence. Anyone can be abused and anyone can be an abuser. We all experience Han and we all sin. But we need to stop the cycle. As Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to stop this cycle. Those who have experienced Han begin feeling shame. Shame emerges when one is helplessly wronged or hurt by others. People frequently feel shame when humiliated. Shame involves discomfort in facing others because of one's own vulnerability. And those who have sinned feel guilt. Guilt arises when one commits sin or does not do right. 
people mainly feel guilty when trespassing others' boundaries. A guilty person experiences the emotional consequence of culpability regardless of whether anyone else is around. Now, a person who experiences Han and therefore shame has a different pathway to salvation, to healing. By hearing and naming the reality of the suffering, victims of sin, or people who are experiencing Han, can begin to find healing and wholeness. So how do we do this? What does scripture say about the experience of the victim of sexual abuse? That was funny. I think that was my phone. I think it thought I said Siri. <laughs> that was funny. Well, we're going to look at a story in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And this is a pretty graphic story. It's Genesis 38, if you want to look it up, Genesis 38. Um, but if it, were on, if it were a movie on TV, I'm guessing that in the corner it would say rated MA for mature audiences, S for sexual content. Probably, if I can imagine the scene in my head, it would also be rated L for language. Um, but this is a story about Tamar. And if you know anything about Tamar, Tamar is um, a woman, one of the only four women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So let's read Tamar's story. Genesis 38, we're going to read uh, verses 6 through 11. So let's start with verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And here we're introduced to Tamar, and this is where things start spiraling out of control. Now, before we go any further, you need to understand that Tamar's story is very difficult. Her story reads almost like a soap opera. It's raw, and the more you dig into it, the more painful it becomes. So as we study it, I want to invite you to take a particular perspective. Because there's two ways to look at Tamar's story, as with any story. You can listen to the version that is spread via gossip, or you can sit down with Tamar and hear it from her perspective. Let me give you an example. Let's, let's just start with the version that you would hear around the water cooler. So you're at work. Just picture the scene. You know Tamar, right? She's married to, to Judah's sons. Well, she was married to the first son, and then she was with the second son when the first one died. And, you know, people are starting to talk about how her husbands keep ending up dead. And do you think that she has anything to do with it? Oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe what she did next. She became a prostitute. And it gets worse. She seduced her father-in-law. And now, you would not believe this, she's pregnant with his child. You can't make this stuff up. Can you picture that scene? At the We've all heard that. Like, you cannot even lie at work or at school. You know someone comes up to you and you're like, you wouldn't believe what happened. You wouldn't believe what she did. We've all heard stories like that. And if someone told you about this, about this story about Tamar, what would you think of her? Would she be the kind of person that you wanted to be friends with? Would you take your kids over to her house for a play date? Now, most of the things that I just said about Tamar are true to her story. And if you've ever read the story of Tamar, those are probably, that's probably the version of the story that you would remember. But it's not the whole story. This, my friends, is one perspective. This is the gossip, gossip version, the, the overly simplistic, on-the-surface version. And this is the story that goes around the office. 
This is the story that, that runs through the church. This is the story that, that everyone's talking about in the neighborhood. And this is why so many women stay silent when faced with abuse. The gossip, the shame. This is why women stay silent. So I'd like you to, cons I'd like you to consider hearing from a different perspective, as if you were hearing it from Tamar herself. Now, we realize something when reading Tamar's story that the Tamars in this world have complicated lives, complicated stories, and they're never as simple as the gossip we hear about them. People have experienced difficult times, and they've struggled, and they've been abused and neglected, and we live in a very messy world. And this is Tamar's story. So you've heard the gossip, but I want you to set the gossip version aside for just a time. And let's give Tamar enough respect to listen to her story with a fresh pair of ears. Listen to her story, be moved by it, and become burdened for it. Because while this happened thousands and thousands of years ago in a culture that will sometimes seem strange to most of us, the underlying pain and hopelessness and frustration that Tamar is, is dealing with is the story that so many people have today. Her story is our story. So let's, let's listen to her story. Let's watch it unfold. So Tamar is given to Judah's son, Ur. Verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Well, there you go. This guy is put to death because, by God because of his wickedness. Now, we have to understand in this overarching story, there's a lot of terrible things that are done by a lot of broken people, but then there's Ur. Nothing is said about what he's done, and it seems almost to suggest that his deeds were too terrible to say out loud, enough to be put to death. In fact, up to this point in Scripture, only, the only sins that God dealt with in this way, in this kind of dramatic way, were unimaginable, terrible, disgusting sins. So he's just been placed with the worst of the worst. And this is Tamar's husband. And what's worse, she was forced to marry this guy. As was the custom, she didn't have a say in the matter. So with the passing of Ur, we might be thinking, oh, this is a good day for Tamar. He was so wicked that he was put to, get, put to death. She must be exhilarated. But it's not that simple. In the ancient world, when a woman was given in marriage, they were given not just to the husband, but to the husband's family. Women had no way to take care of themselves without a family, without a husband or a son. They were destined to struggle through life. So in this culture, it became customary for a widow, if she was young enough, to be given in marriage to the next in line, whether that was a son or a cousin. So per this custom, Tamar would end up with Ur's younger brother. So let's pick up the story there. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Lovely. This is how it would work. So the younger brother would help her get pregnant, in turn give her a child who would inherit his older brother's part of the family inheritance. Which means that if she could have a child through her younger brother, the child wouldn't be his, but would be considered Ur's son and eligible 
to receive the inheritance of Ur. An inheritance was everything because inheritance meant that you got the land, the cattle, the equipment, the fields, the ability to live, and most times live comfortably. But the only way that Tamar will get the inheritance is if she has a son. Otherwise, the inheritance would go to the younger brother. So, Ur, being the younger brother, no, Ur's younger brother, I don't, Onan, being the younger brother, plots against Tamar. Verse 9, he says, But Onan knew that his child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Yeah, that's not the most awkward verse in the Bible that I just read (laughs) out loud in front of everybody. But first, her first husband is terribly wicked. And then he dies, and she doesn't have anything to provide for her. So then her husband's brother uses her, but not in a way that would ever produce a child, which means she will never have a chance at having a life. And because of this, God acts again. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Good. Once again, she's set free from her oppressor. Yes. But... Once again, she's left out in the cold with no prospects. So let's see, verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, he told her, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. Good, happens, can happen again. So Judah sends her back to her family, which at first seems nice enough. You know, go go live with your family, be taken care of. But it isn't very much help. Because as a widow, she would likely never remarry. But Judah does promise her youngest son once he's old enough. So there is kind of some hope, a chance at a life and a family. But then, I'm not sure why Judah wasn't killed. But we learn about his intentions in the next verse. Verse 12, he says, For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. This is subtle, but what he's saying here is that Judah looks at the death of his first two sons, and he sees one common denominator. Now, we know the common denominator. They were both wicked. That's what they had in common. They were both likely abusive and terrible towards Tamar and probably everyone else. They were not the good guys. And that's the common denominator, but in a typical father-in-law fashion, Hopefully there's no father-in-laws here in the room. Uh, Judah doesn't see this as the common denominator. He doesn't see the evil of his sons, but he looks and sees another common denominator, Tamar. He thinks, Tamar is the reason they're dead. She's the one to blame, so I need to keep her away from my third son. Tamar is used, abused, discarded, and now blamed for it all. And if you don't see why this story is still relevant today, then you're not listening. And the problem with blame is that it leads us to make rather terrible decisions. Han leads to sin. The rest of her story is even more dramatic and complicated, and I'll let you read that for yourself. I'll just give you the abridged version. So Judah's wife, while Tamar is gone, Judah's wife dies, and Judah plans a trip to a feast. So Tamar hears of this, and likely out of desperation, in a very Shakespearean way, in a way that you would see in a Charles Dickens novel, she plots her next move, which is big. 
because up to this point, she has not been able to, to decide anything for herself. So here she steps out and she does something for her. She makes a decision. She's going to try and sleep with Judah, her father-in-law, at one last chance of bearing an heir. Now, she must know something about Judah that we don't, that he would have been the kind of guy who would be easily persuaded in this way. Um, so in, while she's out there, she puts a veil on her face, sits by the road where she knows that Judah will pass by. So he sees her and sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. And Judah goes on with his life, never knowing that this happens. Until a couple months later, he catches word that she's become pregnant. Once again, he doesn't know it was because of him, so let's read about this. Verse 24 says, About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. So he hears about it through the grapevine, but he doesn't realize that it was he who got her pregnant, so he says this. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. So she's used, abused, discarded, blamed for it, and then ultimately she's punished for the things that it brings her to do. He wants to burn her. This is the epitome of domestic violence. But this also happens every day in workplaces, in homes, on the streets all across America. Women are harassed at the very least, taking in unwanted advances from coworkers or supervisors or clients or family. And if they report the harassment, they are told, I'm sure it wasn't as bad as you thought. He's just trying to be friendly. Well, maybe you should cover up a little more and it wouldn't happen to you. At this point, women have a chance, or have a choice. We can continue to, to fight, or, or we can just go back to, to our desk and put up with it. If women try to fight it, most likely she's going to be bought off, or fired, silenced, while the male employee has no repercussions and keeps his job, sometimes gets a promotion. And this is Tamar's story. Tamar's story happens every day. She's abused, mistreated, discarded, and blamed for it. So now that we're all depressed, how do we get to a place of healing? How do we get past this? How do we stop these cycles of sin and Han? I'm not so sure that Tamar ever received healing. We don't really know the end of her story. But we can see this cycle of Han and sin. She's, she's oppressed and abused, and the pain within her, the circumstances of her culture, leave her to do the only thing she can think of, which is to hurt another person to get what she needs. So in the wake of the Me Too movement coming out in full force, what do we do? Han and sin, sexual abuse and violence is as old as time. So I've thought of a couple things that I think that we as a community, that I think that we should start doing. First, I think that women and men who have been abused, harassed, share your story, if you can. 
if only to a trusted friend or coworker. Um, I saw a survivor put it this way. He said, do not internalize the abuse because that will make it seem that the abuse is happening over and over again. We have to get rid of the, the idea, the stigma that it's our fault. Well, maybe I, sh I shouldn't have smiled. Maybe he thought I was interested. Is this what women are supposed to want? Hmm, I should have worn something different. We have to get those thoughts out of our minds. It's not our fault. So we need to say something. We need to point it out when, something, when someone has wronged us. Our culture has allowed men to act a certain way, so then other men learn to act that way. We have to point it out in order for people to see they're wrong. Now, there's a pro and con to, every, to everything, and especially because we live in a world with 24-hour news cycles and social media, we can see the effects of this movement both positively and negatively. Positively, women are sharing their stories, finding a voice, and strength to come forward. Structures that have been oppressive to women for generations are crumbling. But on the other hand, men are especially feeling the weight of their guilt and the damage to their family and their reputation and their business. And the weight of guilt can be crushing. We all know that. The weight of guilt can be crushing. And many people, many people are taking their lives after the fallout of these actions. They've lost hope. And this, to me, is so devastating. A North Korean actor just last week hanged himself after allegations of sexual harassment. Pastors and priests are committing suicide when stories are believed. Now, this is a personal one for, for me. Joe and I, uh, just a couple years ago, we had a colleague who had an affair with a woman at his church, and he was working through it with his family, but um, it was just too much, too much to handle for him, and so he killed himself. And the most devastating for, thing for me to think is that who we were yesterday is who we will always be. That there's no hope of change. There's no forgiveness, healing, or salvation. That is so sad to me that, that we can get to that place. The purpose of this movement cannot be to become a witch hunt. It has to be to bring healing and salvation to all. From an article in a magazine, the author wrote, One of the greatest dangers is that in resisting your enemy or defeating him, you become him. This is why, though punishment of sexual harassers may be necessary and appropriate, punitiveness and retaliation will not take us where we need to go. What will is ensuring that everyone has an equal voice, bosses, interns, pants wearers, actors, farmers, and that we hear one another. We cannot allow the oppressed to become the oppressor. Retaliation will not bring justice. Only repentance and forgiveness can bring justice and healing for all. That being said, men have to take responsibility too. King David, a king in the Old Testament, he's pretty famous, and someone, uh, some revere him as a man after God's own heart. I think Paul says that in the New Testament. 
But he had his own dealings with sexual harassment and abuse. Some of you may know this story. And you can read the full story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 if you want. But here's the short version. He looked out the window one night and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And so he said, I want her. So he found out who she was, had her brought to him in the palace to sleep with her thinking that he could get away with it, of course, one, because he's the king, and two, because her husband was off fighting his battles. Then he finds out that she's pregnant. Oops. So he tries to cover it up by bringing her husband home from war, and he just says to the husband, go sleep with your wife, go sleep with her. But he's, her husband is so loyal to King David that he doesn't. He doesn't go home. He says, send me back to battle, send me back to battle. So... David finally just sends him back to battle, but he tells the commander to put him on the front lines to ensure his death. So then once he finally hears that this man is dead, he brings the woman to the palace and makes her one of his wives. This just like makes me want to cry thinking about her story and all that she went through and knowing that this happens. The really great part about this story, though, is that David had a friend. David had a friend who found out what he did and called him out on it. Nathan, this friend, told David that he was wrong, that he had to repent, that he had to ask for forgiveness. And David listened, which is good. And so after Nathan Nathan confronts David, David fasts and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings, my sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. I saw a video this week on Facebook that I shared, so some of you might have seen it, but it was a group of guys talking about the Me Too movement and what their role is in stopping sexual violence. One comment was made in the video that there should be a hashtag, check your boys, and that friends should check one another when they are talking inappropriately about women, when they see their friends doing something that's unwanted or inappropriate. inappropriate. Hashtag, check your boys. And that's exactly what Nathan did. He checked David. He was like, David, no, you cannot do that. Speak out when you see something that is wrong. This is for you guys and women, all of us. Speak out when you see something that is wrong and speak up when you've experienced something that is wrong. The only way that we can change this is with our voices. The awful part of sin is that it makes the sin against feel as if they deserved it, that it was their fault. And when we keep those stories in, we begin to believe that. And that is a lie. We find healing and justice for everyone when we speak up. When you see something that's wrong, you can be a part of the justice. When you speak up because you've experienced something, healing can start to happen. The great thing about calling someone out is that they have the opportunity to repent. They have the opportunity to seek forgiveness. And isn't that what the gospel is all about? Forgiveness and new life that we can find after repentance. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be born again. 
we can start over. The reality of this world is that there are consequences, that there will still be confrontation, that it will still be difficult. But in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, there can be reconciliation, there can be forgiveness and healing. The pain and the sin can be overcome, especially when it's not ignored, especially when it's not brushed aside, especially when it's spoken out loud and brought into the light. Paul says it this way in a letter in the New Testament. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This was my favorite verse. This was one of those life verses that I would write everywhere because who I was yesterday does not have to mean that's who I am today. I'm going to invite the band to come up for our closing song. And as we close, I want to invite us into a time of reflection. The statistics are real that majority of us in this room have been abused. Have you been abused? Have you been the abuser? Or both? Where have you sought forgiveness? Have you found healing? I believe that this work can't be done alone, that we need community, we need people around us to hear our stories, to call us out. So if you want to talk to someone about the abuse you've experienced or committed, um, Joe and I are here. Uh, we, we are not counselors, but we have ears, um, and we believe in full forgiveness and new life that's found in Jesus. We do also have a network of professional counselors who um, we can recommend to you that we've been to, that we have other friends who have been to. We can't do this alone. We have to get it out. Whether you were abused or committed abuse, we have to speak those things out. We have to get them out in order for healing. So we've confronted uh, these issues, albeit not in full. We've confronted racism and privilege, immigration and fear, um, today sexual abuse and violence. And there's so many things that are dividing us. We've talked about that, all the division in our country. You know, just this week, uh, I wasn't going to, this is not my manuscript, but I've just been feeling it. Like conservatives are calling out liberals because they're not saying that we should be against, who's that American Idol? person, judge, Katy Perry. She doesn't look normal. I mean, she actually looks normal, so I didn't know who it was. But um, Katy Perry, you know, like we're calling her out because she's doing something wrong. Liberals are not the only people who need to call people out. Conservatives can call people out too. So let's call out something when we see it being wrong. Anyways, we've dealt with these issues. We haven't dealt with them, not in full, but there's so many things that are dividing us. But Christ calls us to unity. Now, not conformity. We don't have to look the same or think the same or, or be the same. But there is room for diversity. But Christ calls us to unity. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? 
we can see that the world is not how it should be. And we've mostly been talking about what the headlines have been, but what if, guys, what if we can change the headlines? What if, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we can change the headlines? What would you hope the headlines could say? What would you hope the headlines could be next year or in the next five years? If you were writing the headlines, what would you want it to say? We want you to spend some time thinking about this over the next week. Next week, we want to hear the headlines that you would write. We want to hear those headlines because we want to be a community who is living into the hope of Jesus Christ. So we hope that over this next week, you'll, you'll think about that, what, what you think the headlines should read. I just want to mention that if, you'd, uh, if you want to pray with someone this morning, uh, we'll have um, some people back in the back um, who can pray with you during this song or um, after the service as well. I just want to put that out there here. Um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your son, for, uh, for the fact that you loved us so much, that you saw our brokenness, our pain, that you saw our sin and knew that we needed something more. That you sent Jesus to, to be an example, to, to show us that that's not how we have to be. We don't have to sin anymore. and We don't have to take on and hold on to the pain anymore. We thank you for his death and resurrection that proves that death does not have the final say, that pain, all the pain and suffering that we've been through does not have the final say, but that there is life and life abundant on the other side of this. That through Jesus, we can experience that life today. God, we thank you for sending your spirit to us that lives inside us and strengthens us and encourages us and helps us be the kind of people that you created us to be. God, we know that you call us to be change agents in this world. That you call us to be people who bring this kingdom here on earth. And God, we just thank you that you love us so much to want us to be a part of what you're doing and to be a part of your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song. <laughs>